Welcome to Crime on Caffeine. I'm your host, Erica. And I'm your host, Allison. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode. Today, we be sipping, repeater, we be sipping on Chicago French Press again. So if you guys remember, a while back, Erica and I got the Snickerdoodle. And this time, since she did like it so much and they have some fall flavors out, we decided to get their little like Wonderland bundle and, or isn't it called like coffee cozy bundle? Yeah. I don't know. So cute though. And it has snickerdoodle in it again for Miss Erica. And then it has winter Wonderland and pumpkin spice. Y'all know. I be loving my pumpkin around this time of year. And we are just... We are sipping today. I've had like four cup of coffees. Cup of coffees? <laughs> oh my God. I have had a lot of coffee. If you can't tell. I know, me too. I'm drinking pumpkin spice coffee with pumpkin spice creamer. Is it too much? No, never. No, it's not enough. It's not, not enough. My husband agreed that I'm allowed to start taking out the Halloween decorations. So mm. it's on. Oh yeah. Thor has a little, little Halloween bandana. Oh, I love that. We have to start thinking about costumes. Oh, Gus is like the king of costumes. We have like a whole bucket <laughs> of costumes. Also, I apologize if I sound sick. It's because, um, I do have a cold. So Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry if I sound sick, but it's because I, I am, am. <laughs> True crime news updates. So to start, I'm going to update you guys on Gabby Petito, of course. Um, and then I wanted to talk about two other cases that are going around the internet right now that are kind of gathering a lot of attention. So for Gabby... Last time we spoke, they had found some remains, but they did not confirm that it was her. They have now confirmed that the remains that were found in Grand Teton National Park were Gabby Petitos. They said that the cause of death was ruled as homicide and Brian is missing. Of course, there is a federal warrant out for his arrest um, because he did use unauthorized devices like debit cards and PIN numbers to accounts that did not belong to him, and the charges exceeded $1,000. So his parents are very much so emphasizing that the warrant that's out for his arrest is not for Gabby's death, but he is a person of interest. So what we know about Brian right now is that he is in the Carlton Reserve in Sarasota County, Florida. The problem is, is that the Carlton Reserve is over 24,000 acres and it's filled with swamplands. It has alligators, it has snakes, but there are also trails for people to go on. So the search has been a little bit difficult. I know that they've had divers go in and there's trail cameras that can possibly pick up footage videos um, but they're not releasing anything of that sort to us i'm wondering because i saw that they like scaled back the investigation so i'm wondering if they're like kind of picked an area that they're sure he's in i'm wondering if they saw him on those cameras that's what i'm thinking because again as you said they have scaled back the search and the FBI said that they're collecting items for DNA matching. So I'm thinking, just me, just me, a theory. I think they know exactly where he is. I think it was either today or yesterday. They did have a service for Gabby. 
Um, and her dad had a really beautiful eulogy, very heartbreaking. So that is all we really know right now about Gabby Petito's case. They're really honing in on Brian and trying to find him so that we can figure out more about it. The second case that I wanted to talk about is Jelani Day. If you don't know who Jelani Day is, he was missing. He was an ISU student whose body was just recently found near the south bank of the Illinois River, about a quarter mile east of Route 251, which is like by a bridge. So on August 25th, he did not show up to class in Bloomington. People got a little concerned. This wasn't very like him. A lot of people are coming out now after he was reported missing, saying that, you know, he was a productive member of society. His father was recently diagnosed with cancer, and they just found out that Jelani is a bone marrow match for him. And they were like, there's no way that he would just leave his father like that. There's got to be some kind of foul play. But as of right now, they do not know the cause of death with Jelani. So again, they are asking if anybody knows anything about it to contact the Illinois police. And then last is, I just heard about it like a day or two ago. Maybe even today was my first time hearing about it, but um, very close to home in Florida, 19-year-old Maya Marcano, sorry if I say that wrong, who is a sophomore at Valencia College, which is kind of near UCF. She was last seen Friday at her home in Arden Villa's apartment complex, and that's about a mile from UCF. The person of interest in the case was actually found dead, committed suicide. So we still do not know where her body is. She's still considered missing. Yeah. So he was a maintenance man that worked on her apartment in June and he expressed a romantic interest in her, which she denied repeatedly. That is so scary though, too. Think about it. She is a college girl in her apartment and this maintenance man who has a key to every apartment is expressing interest in her and she doesn't want it. Like he could easily. Well, and that's the thing is that he used the master key to enter her apartment 30 minutes before the end of her work shift. That's terrifying. I'm sorry. I think all of these missing cases that are, are missing people's cases that are coming out. I think this is the source of my newfound debilitating anxiety. I've been looking into nothing but missing people and every single one of them. It's like, this could happen to anybody, anybody. Well, like how, if anybody has any information about Gabby, about Jelani, about Maya, about any of the missing people, you can find literally every single missing person on the internet, but those are just three that have come to light recently. We could do a whole episode on, you know, updates of missing people. But these are just a few that we wanted to update you guys on since they are circulating in the news. Yeah, and we'll keep updating you guys on cold cases, missing people cases, things that are going on currently on our Instagram if you want to follow us at Crime on Caffeine. And if you know of any missing persons cases that are happening right now and you want to talk about them or like post them on our stories, get the word out there, send it to us, DM it to us, email us, We're willing to do anything to help, you know? 
So, without further ado... So, I'm going to talk about a couple different cases that kind of reminded me of each other, too. Just tragic stories, tragic deaths that... The cases weren't exactly handled the best, and it left the families with a lot of questions. Police say they were accidents, but the families weren't convinced. So, Kanika Jenkins was born in Chicago, Illinois on May 27, 1998 to Teresa Martin. On September 8, 2017, 19-year-old Kanika told her mom that she was going to go bowling into a movie with her friends. They were going to go out to celebrate. She just got a new job at a nursing home. So at around 1130, she left their home on the west side of Chicago in her mom's vehicle. And about 1.15, she arrived at the Crown Plaza Chicago O'Hare Hotel in Rosemont, Illinois. She was actually going to a hotel party on the ninth floor with three of her friends. She lied to her mom, obviously. We've all been there. We have. At 1.30, she spoke on the phone with her sister, and this was the last that her family had ever heard from her. Oh, I hate that. Mm -hmm. I feel like every case, there's like that moment where it's like, and that's the last time that ever happened. And you're like, oh, no. So there were several videos from the party on Facebook and Snapchat. You can find these on YouTube wherever they got millions and millions of views. There's just like a million different videos. But the videos made it very apparent that not all of the girls were having a very good time. One went live on Facebook just a few minutes after Kanika spoke with her sister. And in the video, you can see a girl with sunglasses who was talking to the camera. And in the reflection of her sunglasses, you can see Kanika sitting across the room. So there were other videos of people just dancing, partying, drinking, whatever, all in this hotel room. And she was reportedly drinking, but she wasn't seen smoking or like taking any sort of drug voluntarily or anything like that. One of the videos uploaded proves that she was still alive after that video that I just mentioned was live. And the last Mm -hmm. time she was on video, she was in the room holding a cup. Um, Around 3 a.m., the girls decided to go home. And Kanika realized that she left all of her things in the room, her keys, her phone. Her friends went back to the room to go get her things. And when they went back to go meet up with her again, she was gone. Which this is so weird to me because like, okay, if her friends wanted to go get her stuff for her, that's very nice of them. But I just feel like you wouldn't stay behind alone. Like you would go with them at that point or like someone would stay with you. You would just go get your things yourself and someone would come with you. I I don't really understand that. Some sources say that like they turned back in the hallway where the room was and some say that they like left her in the lobby Either way, they came back and she was gone. Kanika's mom said that the girls' accounts for what happened exactly just kept changing. So at 3.20 that following morning, technically, but like still that night, she's seen on hotel video footage stumbling near the front desk. And she appeared to be super intoxicated. She was running into walls and stuff, couldn't stand up straight. And the police didn't show the family this footage until 10 p.m. Like, the stuff with the footage is super sketchy. So the footage shows her exiting an elevator on the lower level, and she was headed towards the kitchen on the first floor. Going through the main area of the kitchen, there's a set of stairs that leads up to, like, a second area. And this area was unused. The whole kitchen was under renovation. Like, none of it was being used at the time. But the freezer was still on, and it was running at about 10 degrees. It was capable of getting as cold as 8 degrees. So, like, in the back of this area was a walk-in cooler with the freezer inside. There were no other doors, entrances, exits, anywhere. You could only get in from that little entrance. 
So at 4 a.m., Kanika's friends called her mom to say that Kanika was lost. They had her phone. They were in her car, and they asked her if she might have come home without them. And she was like, no. So they went to go pick her up and drive back to the hotel. And she felt like they were hiding something. She assumed that they were drinking and possibly high. And her friends told Teresa that Kanika only had one drink. But she said that Kanika could not handle alcohol well at all. And even just having one drink would have left her like super fucked up. Goodness. So they were back about an hour later and the hotel staff told Teresa that if she wanted to see the surveillance tapes, she had to first file a police report. And so the police told her that the friends were probably just drunk and that Kanika was more than likely just passed out in a hotel room and to wait a few hours for her to show up before filing. Oh, come on. Yep. Well, I hate that. Me too. So later that morning, around like 6 or 7 a.m., she calls Rosemont Public Safety to report her. And Kanika's sister files the missing persons report. And she's entered into the database of missing people around 12.46 p.m. So the search for Kanika began at 1.15 p.m. These sketchy-ass hotel staff, they claim that they looked at the security footage in full and they didn't see a single thing. This footage of her at 3.20 a.m., they said, oh, we didn't see anything. So police How? I I wish I knew. Police searched the hotel everywhere, like around the hotel on the outside. They found absolutely nothing. And Teresa said that she thinks they didn't even end up really looking for stuff until like 3 or 4 p.m. that afternoon. And at this point, her family was so desperate. They just started to go around the hotel and like knock on people's doors, asking if they'd seen anything, just kind of asking around because they couldn't get any answers from the police. Like nobody was really helping. And guests started to call the cops to complain. So Teresa went back a third time to try and convince them to look at these tapes because they weren't going to look at them because the hotel staff was like, yeah, there's nothing on them. So she had to go a third time to ask them to look at them. And they finally listened. And then they didn't tell them until 10 PM that she was spotted on the cameras. Oh my God. Yeah. So around 12 AM the following morning, they find her body in the walk-in freezer in the cooler of that kitchen that I was talking about. At this point, she'd been missing for almost 24 hours, and the video on the surveillance footage shows her going to the room with the cooler in it, like I'd mentioned, but it doesn't show her walking into the freezer or anything. That's all you can see. So the medical examiner arrived at 3 a.m., and Teresa wasn't able to see her daughter's body until 5 a.m. She said it had already been removed from the freezer, which was now defrosted, and she was found lying on the floor of the freezer. Her hair was a mess. One of her shoes was off. She was in ripped jeans, a cropped jean jacket, and a white bra. And police suspected no foul play. At all? At all. Okay. Yeah, right away. So the first autopsy came back inconclusive. So she had scratches and wounds on her foot and ankle, like of the foot that she didn't have the shoe on. There were no signs of a struggle or a fight. She had a BAC of 0.112. She also had a prescription drug in her system that her mother said wasn't prescribed to her. It was topiramate, which is a drug that's used for epilepsy, migraines, and to lose weight and control muscle spasms. We don't know if someone like put that in her drink or if it was like she was taking it to lose weight or maybe she had a headache and someone was like, oh, I have this. You know, we have no idea. So on October 6th, it was officially confirmed that the death was an accident caused by hypothermia. The prescription drug and the alcohol in her system enhanced each other's effects, which 
sped up the onset of the hypothermia that was obviously caused by the freezer. So the freezer and the cooler both had handles that required pulling to open. The light inside the freezer was not on when she was found. Police came to the conclusion that she opened the door and locked herself in on her own. But Teresa was not buying that she was able to open those heavy ass doors on her own when she could barely even walk. So like think of a freezer in like a restaurant kitchen, heavy ass steel doors. And she couldn't even walk. She was bumping into walls and falling over. So how is she going to get a door like that open? I mean, that's the question that people were asking. There were so many theories. People were on social media just trying to figure out what happened because nobody believed that she could have done it herself. There was a video that was posted on Facebook and there's like a high pitched noise, like a screaming noise or something. And people think that it might've belonged to her. And people were theorizing that she was being sexually assaulted or injured by people at the party. Um, Her friend, Irene Roberts was seen in the video. She ended up deleting her Facebook, but social media users also identified several men that appeared in the videos. It ended up being that the hotel room was rented out by a couple gang members that police were looking for after they found out and they used stolen credit cards to rent out the room. So you have this hotel renting a room out to people with a stolen credit card, which I'm sure they didn't know at the time, but you have all of these underage people drinking and doing drugs. People were calling noise complaints and the hotel's just letting it slide. So a lot of people were theorizing that her friends might've set her up That would be so messed up. Mm -hmm. People were thinking that the girl that was wearing the sunglasses in that one video was the friend who set her up and that like they brought her there and they made money off of those guys sexually assaulting her. But obviously none of these things are confirmed. Like these are just theories that people were trying to piece together. Other theories believe that the hotel might've had something to do with her death. An accident happened. They threw her body into the freezer whether they just use it as a cover up or if she was lured into the freezer by an employee or something, or like maybe something happened with an employee. And like I said, you know, the hotel was letting all of this illegal stuff happen. Maybe they wanted to cover this up because they didn't want to get in trouble for all that stuff. They let slide. People were theorizing that they didn't want to be held liable for her death. So they tried to cover it up. People also were theorizing that like the video evidence might've been edited or tampered with. So there's a lot of theories and, you know, Teresa was just really upset because she was like, in no way was this an accident. So in 2018, she sued the hotel for $50 million. She was claiming that they were negligent and that there were several opportunities for the hotel staff to step in and prevent her death, but they failed to do so. She said that the hotel was made aware of Kanika's disappearance and that they assured her that they'd check the surveillance footage immediately but they fucked up because they didn't check it soon enough and they didn't review it properly. She also explained that Kanika had passed by several employees when she was like drunk wandering around the halls and no one helped her. And the freezer that she walked into must have been easily accessible to the public if she'd actually gone by herself and opened it herself. So weird. So weird. I She's right. Like in everything that she's saying. Yeah, a hundred percent. If something like this is happening on your grounds because you were negligent, no one should have been able to go into that freezer and nobody should have been, no underage people should have been partying in that hotel room, people calling so that you're aware and you do nothing. And one of the girls walking by and is barely coherent whatsoever. How are you just going to let that slide? Yeah. How did she get into an employee only area? 
and get into a freezer. I still can't figure that out. And it's like that she had to walk to get into that second area of the kitchen. You have to like walk upstairs and then go in there and then open the freezer. Like that's so much. When I'm drunk, I'm least effort exerted possible. You ain't going to catch me walking across the hotel to go into an employee only area and then going upstairs and using all my might to open a damn freezer. No, especially when she was on whatever drug too. Yeah, let's talk about that drug also. Clearly something is up there. Whether it had to do with her death or not, something happened at that party and someone knows. Somebody knows. But whether you believe that this death was foul play or an accident, at the end of the day, it could have been avoided for so many different reasons and the investigation could have gone a lot better. No one was taking Teresa seriously. Like, the fact that she had to go three times and tell them to look at the freaking surveillance footage, that's insane. That's the first thing that you should even be doing. Even if you don't think there's anything on it, look anyway. You should be treating this... It's like they were treating it as if it was an accident to begin with, which you shouldn't be doing. You should be treating it as if it's like a missing person or a homicide right from the start. Right. I just think that this wasn't fair to Kanika, her family. I don't know what happened. They still think that it's an accident. I mean, there's petitions where you can sign to have the case reopened. We'll go ahead and link those, but... That's the story of Kanika Jenkins in a little short anecdote. Well, I hated that. I know. So now I want to move over to talk about another heavily questioned case, which is the case of Georgia woman Tamala Horsford. So on November 3rd, 2018, 40-year-old mother of five, Tamla arrived at a sleepover party at 8.30 p.m. in Cumming, Georgia. The party was for a birthday of a friend, Jean Myers. The women invited were friends because their sons played football together, and it was a sleepover so that nobody had to drink and drive. She showed up with a bottle of tequila ready to go. It was supposed to be just women, but Jean's boyfriend, Jose Barrera, and another woman's husband, Tom Smith, stayed, and like they just hung out together. So the two men were downstairs watching football, and then the women were upstairs in the living room watching football, drinking, socializing, whatever. And so Tamla was the only smoker at the party. And so she was regularly going outside in the back to like the balcony or like the deck area to smoke. At one point, she smoked weed, but Jean asked her to stop because Jose was a pre-trial officer. So he was like, he didn't fuck with that, obviously. Yeah. So eventually, the men joined the party, and everybody was playing cards against humanity together. Though she was found to have a very significant BAC, she didn't appear to be drunk to anyone. Apparently, she could handle her alcohol really well, so she could drink a lot and just be, like, totally normal. It would take... She was a tank. It would take so much for her to be acting drunk. But according to reports, she was still awake after Jean and her boyfriend went to bed at 1.30 a.m. The last person to see her was a woman named Bridget Fuller, who was picked up by her husband at 1.47 a.m. So when she was leaving, Tamla had been eating, and she planned to go smoke one more time before she went to bed. And in the next 10 minutes, the security cameras at the house picked up the back door opening, closing, and then opening again at 1.57 a.m. So the next morning, Madeline Lombardi, who's uh, Jean's aunt who lived with them, she found Tamla's body face down in the grass in the backyard at 8.45 a.m. So Jean and her boyfriend called 911, and we'll include the 911 call right here. Forsyth County, 911. 
Uh, yes, um, I, I need an ambulance and a place to my home. What's the address? 4450 Woodlake Court. 4450 Woodlake? Woodlake. Woodlake, okay. All right, 4450 Woodlake Court. What is your name? My name is John Myers, J-E-A-N-N-E. Okay, and your phone number is 609? Yes. Okay, what's going on? Um, we had people over last night when we were drinking. Most of us went to bed. One of them stayed on the balcony. She was drinking, and we just went out outside, and she's laying face down in the backyard. It looks like me. I'm guessing maybe she fell off the balcony, but she's stiff. Okay. Is she breathing? I, I don't know. I don't know if she's face down. Okay. How, how old is she? At 41. Here, hold on. Hey, this is Jose Barrera. Hey, have y'all checked to see if she's breathing? She's not moving one bit. She's not breathing. Um, okay. I just try to assess her Tesla completely face down in the yard. Um, she is stiff. Okay. She was pronounced dead at the scene, and her death was immediately ruled an accident before the autopsy was even released. The case was open for about four months until about two weeks after the ME provided a final analysis, which was in February of 2019. So the toxicology report showed THC in her system and a BAC of 0.238, which is about three times the legal limit. Everybody that was there contested that she seemed totally normal. She did not, she was not coming off as being drunk or anything like that. Wow. So I just want to talk about the history of Forsyth County, which is where Cumming, Georgia is. So black people make up about 3% of the entire county. And there is a Rolling Stone put it as a history of animosity towards black people. So this is pretty crazy. I remember reading about it when I was reading about when I was telling you about Lake Lanier and all this stuff about it. Oh, yeah. So in 1912, the entire black population of Forsyth County, which was about roughly 1,100 people, they were all driven out of the town. White mobs were burning down black churches, homes, and black-owned businesses in response to the alleged rape of a white woman by a black man and the rape and beating of a white woman who succumbed to her injuries. So these weren't proven or anything. She alleged that this happened. So they had a suspect who there was no trial for him or anything, but they lynched him. And then two teenagers had a trial and they were hanged. So for decades, the county remained totally white until about like 1990, there were 14 black residents. Wow. So that's just like a little background that I wanted to include because it's often included with this case. But... Okay. The autopsy showed blunt force trauma to her head, neck, torso, and extremities. She had cuts on her face, four types of hemorrhages in the skull and brain, a dislocated wrist, cuts on her arms and legs. She also suffered a broken neck and a laceration of the right ventricle of the heart. Some people theorize that the cuts on her hands and arms were defensive wounds and that there may have been an altercation before going over the balcony. In fact, the initial incident report believed that she'd fallen in the yard and not from the balcony because the landscape edging matched the scrapes on her body. Goodness. So if you thought that Kanika's investigation was like a little weird, this investigation was botched from the start. Oh, great. The crime scene was never secured, ever. It was never secured. 
And Jean's boyfriend, Jose, who was the pre-trial officer, so he knows what you are supposed to do in a crime scene. He knows what he's doing or what you should do. And he confirmed that he touched the body. And he also found and moved the cigarette and the lighter that belonged to her, so the evidence that they would have used. But because the death was ruled an accident, there was no fingerprinting done or any no evidence was ever tested. And during the autopsy, there was no sexual assault kit performed, no fingernail clippings collected. The tequila bottle wasn't even tested to see if there was anything else in the bottle. Just because from the start, they were like, oh, this is an accident. And like I said before, you should not just go into this treating the entire thing as an accident when you don't know. You should be treating it from the start like it's a homicide. I'm just baffled how, and not even just these cases, I feel like this happens a lot, where there's there's got to be a strict protocol people are supposed to follow, and they just don't. I know. Why don't people do I, it? I, I it wish I could tell you. I wish I could tell you. But something pretty crazy was that Jose Barrera, Jean's boyfriend, like the pretrial officer, he was terminated after it had been discovered that he'd been illegally accessing the incident report, like the police report, multiple times. And he was searching Jean's name in the RMS database. Why, why did he keep going and trying to pull up the report? Like, why was he trying to look at it? Why was he trying to search her name to see if anything came up? Your guess is as good as mine. Mm-hmm. Sketch. So in June of 2020, the attorney for Tamla's family claimed that his team strongly believed that there was possibility of homicide after investigating on their own. One of the most important things that they noted was the lack of crime scene or autopsy photos, which is literally unheard of in investigations. They didn't take any photos. <laughs> like I'm even sorry, before they were like it's an accident why did you not take photos it's still a crime it's, scene that i mean i don't understand uh, neither do i so later that month the case was reopened and it was going to be investigated by the gbi but in july of this year they ended the investigation stating once again that no foul play was involved these are just a couple cases that are just endless topics of discussion online and just people debating whether or not they're accidents or if something really happened and people are covering it up or maybe it wasn't investigated thoroughly enough. Kendrick Johnson was another example of this. He's the boy that was found in the rolled up gym mat. The thing about all of these cases is that they do all involve black victims And according to the CDC, one of the leading causes of death for non-Hispanic black women under the age of 34 is homicide. Black women experience the highest rate of homicides in the U.S. at an average of 4.4 per 100,000 women, and nearly half are killed by a partner. The murder, yeah, so the Murder Accountability Project did an analysis in 2019 that showed the solved rate for white victims of murder increased 81%, which is great but it fell to 59% for black victims. And in Illinois alone, less than 22% of murders of black victims were solved that same year. Black victims were also least likely of any racial group to have their murders result in an arrest. That's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And I think just like the most frustrating part for families and loved ones of these victims is the lack of help and the lack of media coverage surrounding their deaths or disappearances. Just the mothers and the husbands of these victims in these cases were desperate for answers and they just felt so unheard and so unhelped. And cases with black victims are seldom reported on 
compared to cases involving white female victims. But there are outlets like The Root and Essence that do a great job at sharing stories of black victims, but the attention is still minimal. According to the Black and Missing Foundation, nearly 40% of missing persons are people of color, yet black people make up only 13% of the population. So why is there a lack of media coverage? Yeah. So they claim that a lot of minorities are initially classified as runaways, so they don't even receive Amber Alerts. Yeah, so think of all of those missing people that are just pushed aside because they're deemed runaways when they don't even know. And I think we've talked about some cases that were super frustrating where the police have said to the parents, like, they probably ran away. And the parents are so frustrated because they're like, you do not know my child. You need to do an investigation. What the hell? It's messed up. They also said that it's terrible. they also said that many missing minorities are straight away just labeled as being associated with criminal involvement, so gangs, drugs, so like people just don't care to find them or hear about their stories. That's good. That's really good. And let's just let's just do that. And another reason they stated was desensitization. Um, it's believed that missing minorities live in impoverished conditions and crime is a regular part of their lives. So people are just like, oh, this always happens. It's an everyday thing. Last year alone, there were over 145,000 missing people of color under the age of 18 out of over 200,000 reported missing. And even in Chicago alone, when this took place, young black women and girls made up the largest demographic of missing people in the city. So shouldn't we have been hearing about them the most? We 100% should have. I agree. And I found a study, it was in 2009, but I thought it was really interesting because it did include some big name cases that we've heard of or that we reported on or we're going to report on, whatever. But 2009 study at Baylor University looked at the differences in the way that media covers missing black and white women. The mid-2000s, they looked at four large-scale missing persons cases that happened. So they looked at two white women, Lacey Peterson and Lori Hackling. And then the two black women they looked at were Tamika Houston and Latoya Figueroa. So after one month of their disappearances, there were roughly, for Lacey and Lori, there were roughly 597 and 131 transcripts from four major news outlets. And for... Tamika and Latoya, there were five and four. Jeez. Like, just the difference in that is insane to me. And I just want to throw something out there that while we are highlighting the fact that, you know, when black women, black people are victims of these crimes, their cases are less likely to be solved. They're less likely to result in an arrest. They are less likely to be reported on. This does not mean that we don't grieve with the families that are reported on in the news. These families are just desperate for the same amount of attention because they want the same answers that are found after other people are shown in the media. So you might be sitting here like, okay, well, what the hell do we do about it? There are a few things that you can do, which obviously the first and the most obvious is to educate yourselves and to educate those around you. I mean, if you know, you're hearing these things and you weren't aware of these statistics or they just come as a shock to you. Take some time to get educated. It's better to not understand and then educate yourself than to just be like, oh, nothing I can do. Um, social media has played such an important role in helping find missing people. Everything that's been happening, it is so crazy everything that's been happening how- with Gabby Petito, like that case took off. And if we could just take yes. that energy and exert it into these other 
cases of missing people, we would be able to make such a big difference. We can. You never know who's seen something or heard something. And even just the littlest information can uncover something so large. And the fact that social media has taken that by storm is wild. It's so wild. And what we're going to do is we're going to put some resources on our website and we're going to put them in the episode description and some different organizations that you can donate to that help to find missing people that can help with lawyers and equal justice reform. We're going to link to Black Lives Matter, ACLU, Color of Change. We're also going to link to some different Black-owned news outlets a bunch of links. So we're going to include those. You can check those out if you want to educate yourself, educate other people, if you want to donate, if you want to support black journalists, if you want to support bail funds, anything like that. Thank you guys so much for listening. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. All the goods, all the stuff. It's just um, crime at Crime on Caffeine. And if you want to go to our website, it's just crimeoncaffeine.com. You can buy us a coffee. You can submit a case. You can re- recommend some coffee. Do whatever you want. Just make sure you're part of our world. <laughs> We're going to add a new page that's going to have all those resources that I was mentioning before. So if you want to go take a look at those, feel free. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you for your continued support. We are almost at 6,000 downloads and we will be here next week for more crime and caffeine.